me if you hear that and feel like dancing. It just makes you want to move, doesn't it? I think we ought to turn it up louder next time. What do you think? Yeah, definitely louder. Hey, listen, we're starting a new series this morning, and we're starting in the book of Philippians. And I would contend to you that, that the overarching, one of the overarching themes of all of Philippians is Paul choosing, that's the key word, choosing joy. He's choosing joy. Sometimes we go, oh, I just want joy. I wish, And we confuse joy with happiness. But what we see from Paul in the book of Philippians is that joy is a choice. Hence the title of our series, Rejoice. And in parentheses, it's my choice. I'm going to choose whether or not I'm going to have joy. I'm going to choose whether or not I'm going to rejoice. And, and I'm going to choose whether or not the grace that God has shown me is going to show on my face. So that others are attracted to it. And so that I have contentment and that I have joy. Amen? And, and that's what I want you to get in your head this morning is rejoicing is a choice. To rejoice is a choice. If you remember nothing else, remember that. And we're going to talk about what it means, biblically speaking, according to Paul, to rejoice. I'll tell you what, let me pray, and then we're going to dive in. We're going to give a little intro to Philippians. We're going to look at uh, how Paul planted the church there. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of the book. And we're going to look at this idea of what it means, set the stage for the summer, really, of what it means to rejoice. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus, and thanks for your grace to us through him. Uh, Father, I pray uh, that you would speak to me and through me as I teach your word. Holy Spirit, that you would uh, continue to work in me what you've started this week, uh, in, in, in the last few weeks even, studying Philippians and reading through it and recognizing how Paul, in the midst of circumstances I can't imagine, chooses joy over and over and over and over. And there's, there's something about him that's just unshakable. And ultimately, I, I really believe it's because his, his heart, his mind is focused not on his situations, not that those weren't hard or painful or sorrowful for him, but his mind and his heart is focused on your grace and focused on eternity and, uh, and what lies before him. And that's of so much greater value and worth and enjoyment and so he can choose to rejoice, knowing that this is temporary. I pray you'd give me that same spirit. Um, I thank you for what you've been teaching me, and I, I pray you'd help me to teach it well to our church, and that as a church, we will be a church that never ceases to rejoice, but we follow Paul's instructions and we rejoice always. In everything, we rejoice. Pray against the enemy who would love to nothing more than to take our joy, uh, to steal it, to accuse us, to tempt us, and... Uh, I pray instead, Holy Spirit, come fill us with your joy. Fill us with uh, a great appreciation and, and, and fill our minds with, with Jesus' grace. That we think of it often and dwell on it. So teach us now as we dive into this series. And I pray all this through Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The book of Philippians. You ever read the book of Philippians? It's a short one. If you haven't, this is one that if, if you're not... Maybe you haven't been reading the Bible much or you just don't know where to start. This is an easy book to read. And actually, it's a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he planted in a town called Philippi. And, and that's why it's called the letter to the Philippians. Whoever, whoever named all the books of the Bible, wasn't that creative, right? If, if, I mean, like Luke wrote Luke, so we name it Luke. And, and 
Matthew wrote Matthew, so we name it Matthew. There's a letter to the church in Philippi, so we name it Philippians. But that's what it is. It's just a letter. A letter from a guy who started the church to the church that he had started. It's written by Paul while he's in prison. He's in prison in Rome. And, and the letter to the Philippians is unlike any of, other, any of Paul's other letters for one huge reason. Paul isn't writing to the church in Philippi to correct something that they have wrong doctrinally. He, in fact, the only real correction he gives is just to some disputes among some of the people. You know, there are a couple ladies who are arguing. And he says, you've got to figure this out, forgive one another, and live together. We'll get to that later in the series. And, and, but all in all, I mean, he's writing to a church that seems to be really mature. And, and, and it's a church that he has great, we're going to see this morning, great affection for. And you never see Paul write to any other church with the same love and affection that he does. He's not writing to correct them. He's writing to encourage them. Remember, Paul didn't have a phone where he could just call. He couldn't send an email. He couldn't record a video and, and Skype with the church back in Philippi from Rome. He, he had to send a letter. That's the only way he could communicate with them. And so that's what he did. So let's open up to Philippians and let's read through the first 11 verses together and see how Paul starts this letter that he writes to the church in Philippi. Well, it starts out like this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... To the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now a couple things right there just in that opening. That's, that was a customary opening for a letter in that day. We notice a couple things. First, it isn't just Paul. It's Paul and Timothy, right? Timothy's with him. Now I believe Paul still writes the letter, but, but Timothy is with him and he's writing to encourage him. Who's Timothy? Well, Timothy's a guy that Paul had been pouring into. He writes a couple letters to him later. He leaves him in Ephesus to care for the church that he planted there. And Paul writes Timothy letters telling him how to pastor the church. In fact, our, our elder board, before all of our elder meetings this year, we're spending about 20 to 30 minutes reading and studying First Timothy right now. And that's what we do before we have our meeting is, is we open up God's word and we read and we pray. And we're in First Timothy. And, and it's Paul's advice to a pastor. And Timothy was a guy that Paul just, he poured into and he, and he shepherded. And, and Timothy would come along and finish and, and carry on what Paul had started in different places. You, it, I was trying to think of how to describe it. And in some ways, I consider, uh, those of you who have been around for a while, Tom, who preached last week, I consider Tom in a lot of ways a Paul to me. Because uh, for the last 12 years, he and Tammy, they've, they've kind of, especially when I first got here, I mean, you probably remember Tammy, but you guys were kind of my parents here in a lot of ways. I was right out of college. I didn't know anybody. I was, had no money. I was poor. I didn't know how to cook. I mean, it was, they cared for me. And, and in many ways, God's graced me with, with the opportunity to, to carry on what, what Tom and some other families, and I see Ned here this morning, helped start years ago. And for the last 10 years, I've been able to do that. And I still call him and I ask him for advice. And I say, hey, what do we do about this? Or what happened with them? Or why are... And, and I see it, it's a similar relationship. That's, if you want a visual, maybe that's how you'd see Paul and Timothy. Well, Paul goes on and he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. To all the saints. Remember we had a series about a year or two ago. We studied through Ephesians. And I said, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, you are a what? Saint. 
You don't become a saint after you die and somebody pays enough money to the church and they declare you a saint. No. You're a saint the moment you trust Jesus Christ. That moment. In fact, how do I know this? How do I know Paul's not writing to dead people? He says to the saints that are at Philippi. They're alive and and well in Philippi right now and he's writing to them. So that tells me you're a saint the moment you trust Jesus. And there's other teaching that would back that up, but... But Paul wasn't confused about that. Hey, have you trusted Jesus Christ? Guess what? You're a saint. Now you still sin. You're not perfect. But you're a saint who sins. Your primary identity is one of a saint, not a sinner. He goes on and he greets them. He says, grace to you. Favor to you, in other words. And and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's right. Listen to the way that he writes with affection now, even as he opens the letter in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now, there's a, the chance that that's translated, the, the Greek is a little goofy there, and it's hard to totally understand. It could be that he's writing, I, I thank God every time you remember me, because he's in prison. But either way, he's thanking God when he thinks about him. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, Making my prayer with joy. Because, why? why? Why does he pray with joy for them? Well, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, Paul writes, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Listen to that affection for you are, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Think about that. What did the affection of Jesus Christ toward us yield? Him hanging on a cross and dying for my sin. Paul says, I yearn for the church. I I love you in the same way Jesus loves you. And he can say that pretty confidently, right? Because he's writing from prison for preaching the gospel. He's suffering in the same way Jesus did. Verse 9, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, that your love may abound with knowledge and discernment. You know what that tells me? It's not just a wishy-washy, feely love. It's a love that's based on something. It's a love that's based on truth. It's a love that's full of action. That your love abounds, rooted in knowledge, all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I mentioned Paul wrote this uh, letter to the Philippians from prison. It was around AD 61, and he had planted the church about 10 years prior to this. And if you flip back with me to Acts chapter 16, let's look at how this church came about. Every church has a beginning. Do you know that? I think when I was a little kid, I didn't understand that. I just thought, oh, there's always a church. I never thought about, like, who actually started the church? Who sacrificed? Who, who, how many of you, you were here when this church started, when it opened its doors? You were here, like, in that first year, maybe even that first service. Many of you. You're, right, you're, you're, you're humble. You're going like this and put your hand right back down. A lot of you have been, right? And, and this, is, this is the account of the church in Philippi 
getting started. Look at Acts chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 11. Paul, by the way, he was a, he wasn't just an evangelist. He was a church planter. He would go from city to city planting and starting churches. He would reach people with the gospel. And then what he would do is, is he would plant a church. And he often went to major metropolitan areas. So he went to uh, the New Yorks and the Dallases and the Indianapolis and the Chicago and the Los Angeles of his day in that area. And he would start a church there. Why did he focus there? Well, again, communication wasn't like it is today, right? And so, and it still is this way today for the most part, but, but culture would trickle down from those places out to the rest of the known world. And so if he started a, a, a gospel church in a place like that, it would spread naturally as people came to the city to, to trade goods and went back out into the, into the rural areas. Now, what's unique about the way things are changing in the world today is that even in a small church in the middle of cornfields, it's, it's amazing how God has used our church to impact places around the world. We talk about missionaries we've sent all over the place, uh, uh, the, the orphanage in India, um, all kinds of other opportunities, churches we planted in India, sending our students to Bolivia a few years ago, and even the communication over the Internet. The, every couple of weeks, we get a phone call or an email from somebody halfway around the world because they happen to listen to a podcast. That wouldn't have happened in Paul's day. And, but that's why he went to cities. And so that's what he's doing. You get to verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, you're like, I don't know any of these places. That's okay. When, when this was recorded, they would have known exactly where they were, right? They would have known those places, and, and I could show you on a map even where they are today. But he went to Philippi. That's where the letter to the Philippians is written. He goes to the city. What do we know about this city? Well, Luke tells us in Acts, he says, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Paul goes to a leading city, and he plants a church there. Well, we remained in this city for some days. When, when Luke is writing this, we, he's referring to him, Paul, and others uh, with them. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we, were, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. That's a fitting passage for today, right? There's women's ministry activity heading on, heading, or happening after church over in the fellowship hall. Paul's like, I'm going to go check it out and see what the women are doing. So I can pray for them and encourage them. And he shows up at the women's Bible study. There he thinks, right? And he goes out to see them. And well, one who heard us while he was there, verse 14, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. The city of Thyatira, we learn nothing else about that city in Scripture other than in Revelation. It's one of the churches that Paul, or that Jesus, excuse me, writes a letter to in Revelation 1 through 7. And he writes a letter to this church in Thyatira, and it's where Lydia is from. We don't really have any record of Paul going there. So see what happens to Lydia. I wonder if Lydia isn't the person who brought the gospel back to her city, and through her benevolence, a church was begun in Thyatira. Well, she was from Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, and she was a worshiper of God, it tells us in verse 14. Thyatira was known for... Uh, this dye they produced and, and all these, these purple fabrics. And um, it, it, some have said maybe Lydia is just kind of a fashionista. She, she's selling her, her purple goods, right? And, and she's, she's clearly a successful woman in that day and, and good at business. 
To, to be away from her city, traveling wasn't cheap, and to be dealing goods now in Philippi, in a major trade city, Lydia's there, and it says in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, which tells me she paid attention, she, she trusted him, and her household as well. Her whole house came to faith. She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us, Luke said. She just kept asking and asking and asking. And finally, we just had to go. We had to go. There's a couple things there with Lydia. Maybe, ladies, maybe you're here, and I know there's some of you here who you're, you've come to church over and over and over and over by yourself for a long time. And your husband just has shown no interest in things spiritually. Well, you know what? Maybe you would be like Lydia. Maybe one day your whole household would come to faith. Don't quit. Don't quit. You never know how the Lord might use your example. But we have Lydia. Let's see who else we have as the church starts in Philippi. Verse 16. We go to Lydia's house, and as we were going to the place of prayer, skip ahead a little bit, verse 16, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Think about that. Paul's out ministering. And this this girl who's enslaved both physically by her owners who made money from her fortune telling. And also spiritually by a demon who possessed her. She's walking around. These guys are proclaiming the way of salvation. Pay attention. I don't know. Maybe she added other things. I added pay attention. But, but think about that for days. If you had somebody following you around for a few days, shouting out what you were doing, how would that go for you? You'd be annoyed, wouldn't you? Well, so was Paul. Look, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, I like that verse, it makes me laugh. Having become greatly annoyed, turned, and he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Paul speaks with power to this young girl who was enslaved and she knew what she was saying you know that there's the way of salvation but she had no ability apart from God's grace to be able to to believe it and turn to it herself but the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit came upon her through Paul and at that moment it was cast out verse 19 when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone they had been making money off of her They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, remember they're in Philippi here, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. You know what it's like to be put in the stocks in prison in that day? It's not like you think, where, you know, the thing crashes down on your head and you're like this, looking out, you know what I'm saying? No, the stocks in that day, your feet would be buckled in and your body would be contorted backwards where your, your arms would be buckled in or, or, or trapped down somehow. 
And they would get you into such a position, twist your body in such a position that you would just seize up. You ever just have your back seize up in pain? They would force that upon the prisoners. And, and Paul and Silas are put in stocks like this in prison in Philippi. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. You ever been in that kind of pain where you can't move? Where you're stuck? Where, where you're, I don't think any of us have probably ever been in the situation where we've been tortured for our faith in the way Paul was. But, but we've endured different types of persecution, right? But not to that extent. But how many times in those moments where you're in great pain, and pers- you just start, oh, I think maybe I'll sing. I think maybe, maybe I'll whistle. Maybe I'll pray. That's what Paul does. How in the world does he do this? What's been going right for him so far in Philippi? Well, he made it to the women's Bible study. He met Lydia. Lydia and her household believed. She got baptized. That was good. And they went to Lydia's house, stayed with her. But, but then the next day, for days, this little girl's following him around, just annoying the snot out of him. He had nothing to do with it. And so he turns. He's like, in the name of Jesus, I command you, come out of her. And he's... He blesses her in that way, right? The demon goes, but then what happens? Her owners grab him, beat him publicly, throw him in prison. Now he's in the stocks. Paul is a maddening guy. Think about it. I mean, we'll see it later in this letter too. Paul, shut up or we're going to kill you. That's all right. To die is gain. Okay, well then we'll let you live. Well, that's okay to live as Christ. What do you do with him? How does he have this joy? Look at look what else happens then here in Philippi. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. This jailer was a guy, he probably wasn't a soft, warm, fuzzy guy. He was probably just a, a blue-collar, matter-of-fact, do-my-job-do-it-well, loyal sort of guy. Kind of a man's man sort of guy. And when he finds out that that he's failed because of his loyalty to wanting just to do his job well, what happens? He's about to fall on his sword. He's about to kill himself. I think that's one way to look at who this man is. And, but Paul cried with a loud voice, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Look at that change of heart. He had put them in the stocks. He had tortured them. And now all of a sudden he's bowing before them saying, what what must I do to be saved? In fear and in repentance. Maybe you've asked that question. And they said, and I'd say the same to you, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. In other words, it's good for your whole household if if they would believe as well. It's not restricted to anyone. Anyone who would believe would be saved. 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. How great is that? Takes them from prison, takes them home for a little while, gives them some food. They all rejoice in the middle of the night. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. They had to come see the jails destroyed. What are we going to do with them? You know what? Let them go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. They've thrown us into prison and now they throw us out secretly. Anyway, you, you go on and you can read about it in verse 40. Eventually, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And this is the, really the only account we get of what happens in Philippi other than the letter. But we get a glimpse into how this church started. It started with a woman who was traveling by the name of Lydia. She was pretty wealthy probably. Maybe she financed the church. Started with a little slave girl who was enslaved spiritually and physically. She becomes part of the church, I would guess. And it, and it starts with this blue collar, rough around the edges, Roman guard, the Philippian jailer, who comes to faith in Jesus because of Paul's example. Not three people you'd put together, is it? Yet that's how the church starts. And that's what the gospel does, is it overcomes these differences in order for the church to start. And I'm guessing, if we get back to Philippians now, when Paul's writing, these are the people he's picturing. When he says, for God is my witness, in verse 8, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. I wonder if he stops there as he's writing and he thinks, I wonder how that little girl's doing. I wonder if she's married now with a family. Maybe she has kids. I wonder how the jailer's doing and his family. Maybe some of his kids are married. Maybe he's a grandpa. I don't know. I wonder if, he, wonder if he's still a little rough or if he's had his heart softened. Those are the people in Paul's mind when he writes with this type of affection. Now, I told you our series is about rejoicing and choosing to rejoice. And we saw Paul in Philippi, in prison, rejoicing. And we see him now in prison in Rome writing a letter where he says he's rejoicing and full of joy. So, how does a guy who, who suffers in this way still have incredible love for these people? How does he still have incredible hope for their future? How does he still have joy? How does that work? That makes no sense, humanly speaking, does it? Yet he does. Well, as you begin to study what joy means... What you're going to find out is that the word itself in the Greek is rooted in grace. It's rooted in grace. There, and you know what grace is? Grace is undeserved merit, undeserved favor, undeserved love, or sometimes unmerited love. In other words, it's, it's God's favor that you get that you absolutely do not deserve. 
And the word for grace is this Greek word, charis. Sounds like Paris, but it's pronounced charis. And charis in Greek equals grace. Now there's other words that are built off of this word that have the same root. You know what one of them is? You got it on your sheet. You can cheat there. It's, it's kara, which means what? Joy. And joy is rooted then in grace. I would argue that joy is the experience of God's grace, the experience of his charis. And those are two things we just receive from God that we don't deserve. But there's other words in this, in this, in this letter even based off of that same word. And you see one right away in verse 3. I thank my God. Eucharisto is the Greek word, and it means to give thanks. To give thanks. If you have a Catholic background or a high church background, you might have heard of the Eucharist, right? Well, do you know what that word is? It's this Greek word for giving thanks. It's a, it's a time of thanksgiving. And, and what's unique about these last two words versus the first two is the first two are given to us from by God, given to us from God. The last two are our responses to God for what he's given us. So, so I respond to his grace by giving thanks, right? I respond to him by giving thanks. And then the last word, the one we're really focused on for this series, Cairo. And this is the root. It's to rejoice. To rejoice. And so what I want to do this morning, I'm going to give you a definition of what it means to rejoice in light of rejoice being rooted in God's grace. Because the the world may have an idea of rejoicing, of just experiencing joy and being happy. But here's the deal. Happiness is based on happenings. Guess what doesn't always go good? The happenings of my life. And so if my happiness is rooted in my happenings, I'm not always going to be happy. And if I think joy is happiness, I'm in, in for a lot of disappointment. But, but joy is not happiness. Joy is rooted in God's grace, not in my circumstance. And so here's what I would say it means to rejoice. And I would encourage you with me to memorize this definition and to think about it often over the course of the next few months. First is this, to rejoice is to dwell on God's grace, to dwell on God's grace. Paul writes to the Colossians in another letter to another church, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Giving thanks for God's grace. One way you can dwell on God's grace is start dwelling on God's word. Memorizing it, reading it, putting it on your dashboard in your car, putting it on the window or on the mirror in your bathroom. Where do you see it all the time that you could start memorizing God's word? Dwell on it. Dwell on God's grace. Let it, as Paul writes to the Colossians about Jesus' words, let it dwell in you richly. Like not just bloop and then pull it out. But think of like making tea, right? When you make tea, do you take the, the, the tea bag and do you do it like that? Do you just go bloop, pull it right out? Oh, I got tea. No, you don't. You got hot water. <laughs> or do you put it in the cup and let it dwell there for a while? 
so that it radiates out into the water, and now the water becomes something totally different, smells different, tastes different. It's tea. Do you let God's word dwell in you in that way? Dwell on his grace. Second part of this definition, to dwell on God's grace and let it define my life. Let it define my life. Remember, your identity is not in what you do. It is in what Jesus Christ has done for you through his grace. So when I dwell on God's grace, and I think about it often, I, I say this, I've said this before, but you, some of you maybe are new. You notice every time I pray, I pray almost always. I, I start by praying, Lord, thanks for Jesus. Why? Because it's a reminder to me, because I'm forgetful, that my identity is not in ministry, it's not in doing any other thing, it's in Jesus Christ and it's in his grace. And it's a reset in my head, even before I go to God, that say, you know what, I'm thankful for Jesus. That's the only reason I can, can expect you to, to love me and care for me and hear me and do anything for me. It's because of his grace, it has nothing to do with me. So, so dwell on God's grace, let it define you. Understand your identity is in that grace, it's in Jesus Christ reveling in it, reveling in it. You know what it means to revel? I'll give you the dictionary definition of revel. To enjoy oneself in a lively and noisy way. To get great pleasure from a situation or an experience. You know what it means to revel in God's grace? Sometimes it's sitting still and just being overwhelmed with God's love for me and his grace to me. That he loves me, Josh Weiland, even though I deserve to go to hell. He loves me. That's amazing grace. You know what else sometimes it is? It's hooting and hollering and dancing and clapping my hands in a lively and noisy way. It's celebrating. And it's letting it show on my face. So that people would see God's grace to me. I, I revel in it. Would you pray for me over the coming weeks and months that, that I would learn to revel more and more in God's grace? That it would show more and more on my face? Because I don't know about you, my, my face, my, my natural face is, is I look like I'm angry. That's just what I look like. Would you pray for me that I'd learn to dwell on God's grace and, and let it define me in such a way that I revel in it? Or I just sit and revel in his grace. Now why? Why would we do this? Well, here's the why of the definition. Because it supersedes any and every other thing. It supersedes any and every other thing. Nothing compares to God's grace. Nothing compares to his goodness to me. Nothing compares to it. Paul says that in his word, right? He suffers and he can do so with joy because the, the joy and the promise of Jesus in the future for him through his grace makes his suffering right now absolutely pale in comparison. Now what he doesn't say when he says words like that, he doesn't say, oh, my suffering's fun. I love it. It's the best, right? He doesn't say that. He, he would tell you as quickly as, as I would that his... His suffering is awful. 
And it's painful. And my guess is that there were times that he cried. And in fact, there were times you can read where he prays to God, God, would you please take this thorn from me? And what's God's reply to him? Paul, I love you. My grace is enough. Rejoice in that. Revel in that. You'll make it through. And once you make it through, trust me, this will, you, that's nothing. It may not seem like it right now. I know it's hard. Ultimately then, what I would commend to you is that, therefore, to rejoice is my choice. I choose whether I'm going to rejoice. I choose it. Like, you don't know how hard life is right now. You're right. I'm, I, I don't. And I'm not saying it's not hard. And rejoicing doesn't ignore pain. Rejoicing doesn't, doesn't say, get over it. Throw some dirt on it. Come on. Right? Rejoicing says, yeah, it's hard, but, but God's grace is greater. And I can choose to focus on my happenings and wait for happiness, or I can choose to focus on God's grace and choose to rejoice. Amen? It's my choice. So quickly as we close, let's go backtrack through this passage just quickly and see how Paul begins to rejoice even right away in his letter to the Philippians. Remember, he's in prison. He's been in prison. He's been beaten for his faith. All kinds of crazy things. Well, first off, he rejoices, verse 3, by being thankful. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He rejoices by being thankful. That's a great way you can choose to rejoice like Paul does. I can choose to be thankful in any and every situation. Now, uh, I'm not, there's, there's one passage in Ephesians where it's translated, be thankful for every situation. I don't, I don't know whether that's the right translation. He says, be thankful in every situation for sure. It might be for it too, but if it is for it, why is it for it? Not because it's a crummy, horrible thing, but because God's grace will get me through it, Right? Because God's grace will take me through it. Be thankful. Learn to be thankful. He rejoices also, verse 4, by praying. Look, he says, I thank my God and my remember. You can do these two together like Paul does. Always in every prayer of mine for you. He rejoices by praying. How often do you pray? Maybe you would start by, by pick something that's routine in your life that, that happens every day. Every day I brush my teeth. I hope so. Every day I, I get in the car. Every day I sit down on this chair. Establish that place, even if you struggle with prayer, find like one second in your day, five seconds in your day. When I, when I sit down in this chair, first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray a prayer of thanks. I'm going to say, Father, thanks for getting me here. Thanks that you love me. Thanks for Jesus. Amen. Begin the conversation. Learn to rejoice. Find something regular in your life where it's just a trigger for you for prayer. Maybe you're, maybe you're an all-star prayer and, and you do great at that. Then encourage others who need help. Paul also rejoices by loving. Verse 3, he thanks God for them. Verse 8, he says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
You, you want joy? You want to rejoice, to choose to rejoice, to choose to dwell on God's grace and let it define you and revel in it because it supersedes everything else? Then learn to love other people. Put other people first. Love them like Paul did. Paul also rejoices by serving Jesus. I mean, and you could include serving others in, ter- in part of the loving piece. Verses 5 and 7. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel. Partnership, some, your translation may say fellowship. But fellowship in, in modern language, for whatever reason, has just been really dumbed down. And when we think fellowship, we think, oh, I'm going to go have a cookie and some coffee and have a little fellowship. Okay, great. But when it talks about fellowship in the Bible, it's talking partnership. This was a church in Philippi who supported Paul while he's in prison. It's a church that suffered with him, he says. It's a church that gave towards him. It's, it's more than just coffee and cookies, and those are great. I love them. But there's got to be partnership. That's, it's, it's two fellows in the same ship, going the same direction, accomplishing a goal. It's one way to think of fellowship. But serving Jesus and doing it alongside others, that's how Paul rejoices. He rejoices in him serving Jesus and in others serving Jesus and doing it together. You can see that in verses 5 and 7. And then finally, verse five, Paul rejo- or number 5, Paul rejoices by being hopeful. Verses 6 and then 9 through 11. Verse 6. You maybe have this verse on a t-shirt or a coffee mug or a calendar in your house. And I'm sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you. What good work was it? Well, if you look back at verse 5, that good work is the work of them serving with him in ministry. I'm convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He has hope. He's hopeful. He's looking ahead. He's not focused on the here and now, not his happenings, but God's grace and eternity. Look at verses 9 through 11. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It's in the future. He's looking ahead. He's hopeful, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Are you hopeful? Get your eyes off of now. Get your eyes on Jesus. Get your eyes on eternity. That's not ignoring your present suffering, right? Hear me. I'm going to say it again so that somebody doesn't call me or email me this week. It's not ignoring how you're suffering. And it's not diminishing how you're suffering or hurting. It's not. We go through a lot of trials and a lot of pain in this life. And that's exactly what it is. And that's how God sees it. But are your eyes on this or are your eyes on Jesus? And I can't rejoice when my eyes are here, but I can rejoice in any and every situation through Christ who gives me strength, Paul writes at the end of this letter. I can do all things through him. So like Paul, choose to rejoice. First, focus on Jesus. I couldn't talk about joy without using the cliche old acronym for joy, could I? Focus on Jesus like Paul does. Focus then on others like Paul does. And then yourself. Joy. Jesus, others, yourself. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. And thank you for the example of a guy like Paul who... uh, 
He, he was kind of like the ISIS of his day. He was persecuting Christians. He was chasing them down. He was, he was murdering them. He was watching and reveling in the death of, of we see it of Stephen in, in Acts chapter 7 and of others. And finally you grabbed his heart. And you took him and changed him in an instant to where he learned not to to revel in that, but to revel in your grace. And he became fixated, Jesus, with you. And his focus was always on you and on, on others and then himself. And that's why when he, when he suffers, when he, when he is persecuted for his faith, when he has hardships, whatever they are, he can, he can still rejoice because he turns his eyes to you. Continue to show that to me and to us through his letter to the church in Philippi. Continue to work uh, in each of our lives in such a way that we would do the same. That we would choose to rejoice. That we would uh, choose to focus our hearts and our minds on your grace and let it define every aspect of our life. And, and revel in it. Because the truth is it supersedes any and every other thing. Father, I pray for those who maybe have never experienced your grace today. That, Holy Spirit, I pray you would help them know, just as Paul told the Philippian jailer, that to be saved, all they would need to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To, to, sometimes in Scripture it says to repent, which just means to turn. To turn from their sin and their way of doing things to Jesus and to his way. And to trust him and his payment on the cross for their sin. And then you make them new, and then grace defines their life. So I pray for anyone in that spot that even today they might make that choice. But Father, continue to work in our church. We pray all this through Jesus, our Savior. Thanks for your grace to us through him. Amen.